Good morning, Bethel. It's great to see everyone this morning. If you are new with us and you don't know me, um, my name is Tyler Miller, and I'm the associate pastor here. For the past few weeks, Chris McGarvey, our lead pastor, has been preaching through a series on gospel culture. In this series, he's been showing how the gospel shapes us as individuals and as a community. So the gospel, the good news that Jesus, for us, and for our salvation, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose from the grave. It's not just a truth we believe. It is that. But it also changes us from the inside out. Ray Orland puts it well when he says, quote, gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. Without the doctrine, the culture is unsustainable. Without the culture, the doctrine appears pointless and powerless. So this morning, we're wrapping up our series on gospel culture, and we're focusing on hospitality. Um, before we dive in, let's take another moment to pray together. Lord, we praise you for bringing us together as a church family. We praise you for the grace and mercy that you have shown us through Christ who died for sinners and rose from the dead. God, we praise you for the privilege of gathering together week in and week out to worship you and to hear from your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we do that, as we open up your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me as I share what you communicate to us through the Bible. And, Lord, I pray that you would work powerfully among us, that you would work in our hearts in wonderful ways, that you would help us to see the hospitality that you have shown us, and God, that you would let that gospel doctrine shape a gospel culture of, of hospitality here at Bethel. So please begin to do that work uh, in and through us this morning. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So if my accent hasn't already given me away, I was born and raised in the South, in Tennessee. Uh, there, we take pride in our Southern hospitality. Now, this may be a bit of an overgeneralization and over-exaggeration, but in the South, we're quick to invite folks into our clean, well-kept, well-prepared homes to play games, to talk, to watch TV, particularly college football, or to share a meal, which must include sweet tea. And while they're there, while, while these guests are there, we'll make, sure to feel, we'll make sure that they feel welcome. We'll be sure to show them a good time. We'll make sure that everything goes according to plan and that all the trains run on time, and that's considered good hospitality. Now, some regions are quicker to invite guests in than others, but I don't think this notion of hospitality is limited to the South except for maybe the sweet tea. Uh, it's commonplace. Uh, in fact, dictionary.com defines hospitality as, quote, the friendly reception and treatment of guests or strangers and the quality or disposition of receiving and treating guests and strangers in a warm, friendly, generous way. Now, on the surface, those definitions may seem pretty accurate, actually. And to be fair, they do begin to get at the idea of biblical hospitality, but that's just it. They don't go far enough. They don't go deep enough. 
they only scratch the surface of Scripture's teaching on this virtue and how we as Christians should live it out, to think about it, to practice it. They're missing something. So this morning, we're going to examine a number of different texts to see what the Bible says about hospitality. And as we do so, we'll consider, one, the requirement of hospitality, two, the root of hospitality, three, the outworking of hospitality, and four, the goal of hospitality. So first, the requirement of hospitality. One thing that's absolutely clear in the Bible is that hospitality is not optional. God requires Christians to joyfully show it to strangers and fellow believers. A brief look at just a few texts shows this. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 2, commands believers, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The apostle Paul in Romans 12, 13 states this command in a positive way with a little bit more force. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So lest we consider hospitality a passive act, something we shouldn't neglect when we're given the opportunity, we need to hear Paul's command uh, to not simply extend hospitality to those who come across our paths, but to look for it, to seek for it, to strive for it, to pursue it. That's not a passive effort. That's an active one. And it's an active discipline that we must pursue with fellow believers with the right heart. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, 9, makes this point. He says, show hospitality to one another, as fellow believers, without grumbling. Furthermore, Paul, in 1 Timothy 5, 9 to 10, even lists hospitality as one of the requirements for widows to receive assistance from the church. And then last but not least, Paul, in 1 Timothy 3, 2, and Titus 1, 8, lists hospitality as one of the requirements for church elders, which is an office reserved for men. So guys, I think that one should be particularly striking to all of us, since the character, that the qualifications, that the lists uh, for elders should meet, it's not reserved for a uh, subset of super-Christians. That character is something that men we all should strive for. That character is actually something that Christians, men and women, we all should strive for. Hospitality is required. Now, we don't have time to take a deeper look at all of those passages this morning, although we're going to consider the Romans text a bit more. But taking all of this biblical counsel into account, the least we can say is that Christians are commanded, we're required to seek to show hospitality to strangers and fellow believers with joy. But in order to respond appropriately to those commands, we need to dig a little bit deeper to see what the Bible means by hospitality and why God is so adamant that we pursue it. And that brings us to our second point, the root of hospitality. So look with me at Romans 12, 13. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 948. So Romans 12, 13, page 948 in the Pew Bible. Here, the Apostle Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Many commentators point out that around this time, inns could be dangerous. They could be expensive. And so travelers 
especially itinerant Christian teachers and missionaries, depended on others to open their homes to them. And that's where believers would come in. They would show hospitality by offering safe lodging, by offering food, by offering refreshment to those in need. And so one thing we can say is that hospitality involves joyfully opening one's home and resources to others, Christians, non-Christians, and strangers. But I think there's more going on here. So here in Romans 12, 13, the word there that's translated hospitality is philoxenean. It's composed of two words, philos, which can mean love, and xenos, which means stranger. It's actually where we get our English word xenophobia, which is fear of strangers or foreigners. And so hospitality, what, call, what Paul is calling us to seek to show here in Romans 12, 13, is literally love of strangers. I think that's very significant to note, especially given the context. So turn back a bit to Romans 12, 1 to 2. There, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So up to this point in Romans, Paul has beautifully and in great detail explain the work that God has done to make believers righteous before God through faith in Christ. And now in chapter 12, he's starting to flesh out the implications of that gospel for our daily lives. And that's what he's getting at in verse 1 when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In effect, it's like he's saying, in light of the mercy God has shown you, live like this. Pastor Chris actually mentioned this on Sunday when he was preaching on Romans 12.10, and he made the point that we find the power to outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12.10, through the gospel, through the fact that God made us in his image, that's great honor, and in spite of our sin and dishonoring of God, he restored us to a place of highest honor through Jesus Christ. Well, the same thing applies to Paul's command to seek to show hospitality in chapter 12, verse 13. So in other words, just as the gospel provides the motivation, the power to outdo one another in showing honor, so the gospel provides the strength, the power to seek to show love to strangers. Gospel doctrine creates and shapes gospel culture across the board. So how specifically does the gospel apply to hospitality, though, to seeking to show love to strangers? Well, for that, let's look at Leviticus 19 first. So that's page 98 if you're using the Pew Bible. Leviticus chapter 19, page 98 in the Pew Bible. In verse 18 of this chapter, God gives a command to the nation of Israel. He says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So God's people must love their neighbors, their own people as themselves. And that's hard enough. But God increases this demand 
in verses 33 and 34. There he says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. So the command to love your neighbor as yourself is now extended to the stranger, and then don't miss this. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. For over 400 years, the nation of Israel lived in the foreign land of Egypt. And when they faced affliction, when they cried out to God for help, God heard them. God rescued them. He brought them out with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. So why are they to welcome strangers as natives? Why are they to love strangers, to love sojourners as themselves? Because they were strangers in Egypt. They had at one time been foreigners, and God showed them grace. God showed them mercy. God showed them love. How could they not extend that grace, mercy, and love to the stranger, to the sojourner, to the neighbor in their land? God's mercy necessarily shapes God's people. So you might wonder at this point, though, well, that's for Israel. What does that have to do with me? What impact does that have on us today? Well, flip ahead with me to Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. This is on page 976 and 977 in the Pew Bible. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 page 976 and 977 in the Pew Bible. So in this passage, Paul addresses another group who knew what it was like to be foreigners, who knew what it was like to be strangers and to be shown immeasurable mercy. So he's writing to Gentile or non-Jewish Christians here, and he tells them to remember that at one time, they were, verse 12, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They weren't part of God's chosen people. They didn't receive God's promises. They didn't receive his law. They were aliens. They were foreigners without hope and without God. But Jesus did something wonderful for them. Jesus, Paul explains, died on the cross not only to reconcile to God those Jews who would trust in him, but those Gentiles also. And so through Jesus's blood, through his sacrificial death for sinners of all nations, Jesus, as Paul says in verse 15, created in himself one new man in place of the two. So it's no longer Gentile and Jew. This is one new man united in Jesus. So one new man in place of the two, making peace where there once was hostility and granting through himself both groups access in the Spirit to the Father. And for Gentile Christians, this was especially good news. They were once far off, verse 13 says, but because of the blood of Christ, they have been brought near. They were once strangers and aliens, 
But now through Christ, verse 19 says, they are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So if you are here this morning and you're trusting in Christ, that's you. Bethel, that's us. God has shown us incalculable hospitality. We were strangers in a faraway land in bondage to our sin and at war with God. But God, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, has mercifully brought us near. So through Jesus' perfect life, through his sacrificial death, through his triumphant resurrection, God has reconciled us to himself and he's brought us into his house. He's welcomed us into his family He's lavishly spent on us and given us the best gift we could ever hope to receive, an undeserved but freely given place at his table. That's what God's done for you, and that's what God has done for me if we're trusting in him. That is hospitality. And so, yes, hospitality involves opening up our homes to others, but it's more than that. Rooted in and motivated by the gospel Hospitality is an inward disposition of love for God and love for neighbor that's outwardly expressed through a multitude of actions intended to serve other people. So let me say that again. Hospitality is rooted in and motivated by the gospel. It's an inward disposition of love for God and neighbor that's outwardly expressed through a multitude of actions intended to serve others and bring them in. Tim Keller, he puts this uh, in a great way in a wonderful sermon that he delivered on hospitality. He says, quote, hospitality is an attitude of the heart and a practice, heart and action. And in the words of Alexander Strzok in his book, The Hospitality Commands, quote, hospitality is love and action. Hospitality is the flesh and muscle on the bones of love. So what are some ways that we can seek to show love to strangers? What are some characteristics that should define our hospitality? Well, that brings us to our third point, the outworking of hospitality. So when we find the motivation, the power for our hospitality and the hospitality of God, our love for strangers takes on at least four characteristics. One, it's God-centered. Two, it's familial. Three, it's missional. And four, it's costly. So first, it's God-centered, meaning that it's meant to bring glory to God and testify to the wonders of His grace. So John Piper, he makes this point in a sermon he delivered in the 80s titled Strategic Hospitality. He references two texts in that message. One is Ezekiel 28 and 9, in which God says that he spared Israel, who rebelled against him and committed idolatry. He spared Israel from his wrath in the land of Egypt for the sake of his name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived. And the other text Piper references is Ephesians 1, 5-6, in which Paul declares that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And this is Piper's point, and this is so important for us to remember that 
God showed us hospitality, quoting Piper here, for the praise of the glory of his grace. It was the same reason that he rescued unworthy strangers in Egypt, for his own glory. This was grace in the Old Testament, and it's grace in the New. The ultimate foundation of Christian hospitality is God's unwavering commitment to glorify the freedom and all-sufficiency of his grace. End quote. So God doesn't call us to practice hospitality for hospitality's sake. Rather, he requires us to seek to show love for strangers because that's what he's done for us. That means that when we joyfully open up our home to strangers, when we take folks out to coffee, when we serve people a meal, we aren't saying, look at me, look at me. Instead, we're saying, look at God. This is only a fraction of what he's like. This is a microscopic picture of his mercy and his love. Isn't he great? That's what we're saying when we extend biblical hospitality so it's radically God-centered, but two, it's familial, meaning that it's one of the most essential means by which we display the love of Jesus to our brothers and sisters in Christ. A great example of this in the New Testament occurs in 3 John 1-8. to uh, There, John praises a man named Gaius for showing hospitality towards some brothers in Christ who had traveled to him. And so he says, starting there in verse 5, Beloved, that's Gaius, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Some of you have recently imitated Gaius' hospitality here at Bethel. You've lovingly hosted missionaries in your homes, and you've invited others in to hear from them and to hear about what God is doing around the world. This is no small thing. Alexander Strzok, again, he says, quote, the presence of Christian brothers and sisters in our homes is a foretaste of our glorious, heavenly dwelling place that will be filled with people, angels, and the perfect host, our Lord Jesus Christ. So others of you show hospitality here week in and week out on the welcome team by greeting strangers and making sure they feel comfortable and at home. Others of you show hospitality week in and week out by serving in our children's ministry, making sure that children and parents feel welcomed and feel the love of Christ through your actions. Still others Show hospitality in your home by hosting a community group, by getting to know others there and investing in their spiritual growth. And we could go on and on. There are so many ways that we can show hospitality here at Bethel, and we need to be intentional to continue to seek those out. That's what Paul's calling us to in Romans 12, 13. So today, ask yourself, what ministries might I volunteer for that give me the opportunity to extend God's love to strangers? Who can I talk to after the service and seek to encourage? Or who could I invite to lunch today? Or who could I invite into my home this week? Hospitality is familial. 
And three, hospitality is missional, meaning that it's one of the best ways we can seek to show love for strangers and invite them to sit at the table of our God and gracious host. So here another quote from Strzok. This one actually might sting a bit. He says, For the early Christians, the home was the most natural setting for proclaiming Christ to their families, neighbors, and friends. The same is true today. And if you and or your local church are looking for ways to evangelize, opening your home is one of the best methods for reaching the lost. Most of us, however, are not using our homes as we should to reach out to our neighbors, friends, and relatives. Tragically, many of us don't even know our neighbors. Yet through hospitality, we can meet our neighbors and be a lighthouse in spiritually dark neighborhoods. So Bethel, do we know our neighbors? Are we lovingly seeking to invite them into our homes to serve them, to get to know them, to befriend them with no strings attached, to show them the love of Christ and tell them about Jesus? Pastor Chris recently lent me a book. It's called The Art of Neighboring. And in it, the authors challenge readers to list just a few basic things about the eight closest neighbors to their home. So one is their names. Two is something about them you could have only learned through conversation. And then three is something personal about them that you would only know from having a deeper connection with them. Those three things for the eight closest neighbors, uh, eight closest homes around your house. How would you do? That dings most of us, right? Why? It's because we haven't been investing in our neighbors as we ought. But lest we sit here and lest we wallow in shame over this, this is where we need to remind ourselves of our great gospel doctrine. We were once strangers, plagued by sin, without God and without hope. But through Christ's life, through his death, and through his resurrection, God has graciously brought us into his family. He's brought us into his home and seated us at his table. How can we not go to our neighbors and invite them to the party? So if you're convicted by your failure to show hospitality to your neighbors this morning, run to your hospitable God for forgiveness and run to him for grace. He's ready and willing to extend it. And then run to your neighbors and invite them in. And let's go to all our neighbors, not just the ones who are easy to love. Gospel-driven hospitality doesn't discriminate. A beautiful picture of this can be found in the life of Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she was once a tenured professor of English at Syracuse University and a lesbian. But now she is a follower of Christ. And her testimony is so powerful. I've been uh, reading her book this week. It's called An Unlikely Convert. I would highly recommend that to you. Go get that and soak it up. It is so good. Um, but while uh, Rosaria Butterfield was at Syracuse, before she knew Christ, she wrote an article uh, for a newspaper and received a response from a local pastor named Ken Smith. 
So when Rosaria reached out to him, Ken and his wife invited her over to their home for dinner. And Rosaria says that they became friends and that over the course of two years, Ken and his wife brought the church to her. Now a Christian, she urges fellow believers to show hospitality to members of the LGBT community. And she focuses on how essential it is to our witness. So she says in one interview that I listened to, quote, the hardest part of life in the family of God wasn't so much being denied lesbian sexuality. The hardest part was the idea that I was going to be lonely. And she continues, and oh, this is so good. The gospel comes with a house key. If it doesn't, it's half of the gospel. So Bethel, let's seek to show hospitality, not just to one another, but to neighbors, to sojourners, to strangers, to LGBT persons. As we do so, our hospitality is missional. And then finally, hospitality is costly, meaning that it demands our time, it demands our effort, it demands our resources, it demands our selflessness. So Luke 14, verses 12 to 14, illustrates this point. You don't have to turn there, but there Jesus says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, I don't think we should read that and conclude that we should never invite wealthy people into our house. I don't think that would be right. But we should read this and conclude that uh, we should seek to ho show hospitality, love of strangers, to the poor, to the disabled, to those who are marginalized by our society. And as we do that, who pays that cost? We do. We pay that cost. We use the resources that God has given us to host the party. We take the time and effort to prepare the feast. We open up our homes without regard for any of the mess that might be left afterward. Unless we're tempted to grumble and are showing hospitality, consider again our hospitable God. Think about how much it cost him to bring strangers into his family, into his house. That did not happen without incident. No, it required Jesus, the Son of God, to give up his place in heaven, to come to earth and add humanity to his divinity, and to die an ugly, painful, horrible death on a Roman cross for sinners like you and me. The gospel is costly. Living out the gospel is costly, but it's so worth it. You know why? It's because we get God, and we get to participate in his mission to bring others, to bring strangers into his family. John Piper, he puts it so well here. He says, quote, when we practice hospitality, here's what happens. 
we experience the refreshing joy of becoming conduits of God's hospitality rather than being self-decaying cul-de-sacs. The joy of receiving God's hospitality decays and dies if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to others. Think about how countercultural that is. Remember the command to seek to show hospitality in Romans 12, 13. It comes in the context of Romans 12, 1 to 2, which reads, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So not only is our hospitality rooted in the mercy of God, but our hospitality is also one of the ways in which we do not conform to the world. It's countercultural. So we live in a context in which individualism, selfishness, and pride reign. And recently, xenophobia, the fear of strangers, the fear of foreigners, has even come to the forefront in our country, especially in the recent presidential election. But our hospitable God, He commands and empowers us to die to ourselves and to seek to show hospitality to strangers, to aliens, to foreigners. And when we live this out, when we intentionally strive to show the love of God to strangers without discrimination and at great costs to ourselves, we're a city on a hill. We're light in the darkness. We're calling sinners to the table of the Lord. That's gloriously countercultural. But if we're honest, We've all failed here in one way or, the, or another. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, the bad news this morning is that you've sinned against God by failing to love him and your neighbor as you ought. And because of your sin, you're a stranger and you're far away from God. Oh, but there is good news for you today. Jesus died to make strangers not just guests in his family, but to welcome them as sons and daughters. So this morning, if you are here and not a Christian, let me invite you to the feast. Turn away from your sin and run to the God of utmost hospitality. But if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you and I have sinned in this area too. Maybe you haven't shown hospitality because of the monetary cost, or maybe it's the selfless time-consuming effort that it requires that's held you back. Or maybe it's fear that's hindered you. People get closer to the real you when they're in your house, when they're around your table. They see your mess, both physical and spiritual. Or maybe you're an introvert and you're afraid of approaching new people, so you just don't do it at all. Whatever the reason, though, don't despair. Instead, repent. Forsake the ways that you've been inhospitable Cling in faith to our hospitable God who's graciously seated you at his table and look for ways to extend that hospitality to others. And as you do, don't simply focus on what God's done for you in the past. Look ahead to the bright and glorious future he has for all of his people. And this is our last point, the goal of hospitality. Did you know that a day is coming when all God's people will share a meal with him in his kingdom? It's coming. Isaiah 25, 6-9 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts 
will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That day's coming, folks. And oh, how great it's going to be when we all have a seat at God's table with saints from every tribe, tongue, and language, all of whom were once separated by God from our sin because of our sin, when we're gathered together and we revel in the presence of our most marvelous, most marvelous host. As Revelation 19.9 says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be good. So let's seek to show hospitality to others. For God's already brought us into his home. God continues to provide for us. And one day, he'll host us at the best feast we can ever dream of. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your hospitality. That while we were sinners, that while we were strangers, Christ died for us to bring us in. And God, we thank you for opening our hearts to receive that good gospel, for changing us, for making us your adopted sons and daughters, for seating us at your table, and for giving us such a great privilege to share that hospitality with other people. And so God, I pray that you would help this gospel doctrine, this gospel doctrine of our hospitable God, help it to shape our gospel culture here. Please, Lord, make us in to a more and more and more hospitable people. And God, as we do, help us to bring glory to you. And God, help us to bring the stranger in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.